Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a physician scientist explains the concept of herd immunity and why we probably won't get there for COVID-19. The problem with COVID was not is not necessarily the number of people who are going to be hospitalized or the number of people who are going to die. It's the fact that the entire planet was non-immune. And we'll explore the benefits of hiking, along with what you need to know to get started. Generally, hiking um, is a more strenuous activity um, because the paths that you're on are not usually groomed. They're going to require a little bit more energy. All that and what happens when you test positive for HIV, along with a visit from the Healing Muse after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll learn about the protection offered through a vaccine. Then we'll explore hiking. But first, what is herd immunity and will society ever get there for COVID-19? From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Throughout the pandemic, we've heard about herd immunity as a strategy to help get things under control. Here to talk about the challenges in reaching herd immunity is physician scientist Dr. Stephen Thomas. He's director of Upstate's Institute for Global Health and Translational Science, and he specializes in infectious disease. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Thomas. Well, thanks for having me, Amber. Let's start with a description of what herd immunity is. So that's a that's a question a lot of people have a have an interest in these days. So for uh, let's just speak specifically about COVID, right, which is uh, caused by the virus SARS-CoV-2. Uh, for for COVID to continue to persist in uh, uh, any kind of area, whether it be Central New York or the United States or the world, uh, there have to be susceptible people. Right, so the virus can be transmitted from one person to another. If everybody is susceptible and nobody has any immunity, then it's very easy for the virus to go from one person to another. But if you have within a group of people a certain percentage of them that are uh, immune, either because they've been recently infected or because they have been immunized, then it's very difficult for that virus or becomes more difficult for that virus to pass from one person to another. So the example um, uh, that I kind of use is imagine, uh, imagine a line of 10 people and every one of them is susceptible to infection. Once that first person gets infected, it can go down the line very quickly. But if let's say person two through person eight is immune because they've been vaccinated, even though that first person can get infected, it's going to be very difficult for the infection to ultimately get down to that ninth person. Um, so that's it. So it's it's kind of like the overall immunity within a population, uh, such that even people who are not immune benefit from that overall immunity. So how do you, in in terms of enough immune people, how many is enough? Is, is it a simple mathematical calculation or does it depend on population density, rural versus urban, or is it something, something more? So there are, there are calculations that, that you can do. Um, but what I would say is, you know, I, I, I don't do them. <laughs> there are, because there are, to me, there are so many different factors that play into, um, there are so many different factors that play into that equation. Uh, number one, uh, number two, um, you know, and this is you know this is just my opinion. Uh, those factors are are always changing. They're not static. For example, so so one of the factors that you take into consideration is um, the level of uh, you know a person. Are they immune or are they not immune? Well, immunity is not a static. Um, a, a static measure, right? So I could be infected today and I'm going to have a certain level of immunity 
uh, tomorrow and then a month later, it could be different. And then six months later, it could be different. And we know that this is the case. And the same thing could be true for immunity imparted by vaccination, right? So that's a that's a changing dynamic within a population. Uh, you know, another factor is, well, what is the infectiousness of that virus? You remember very early on in the pandemic, we were making all sorts of comparisons to, well, how infectious is influenza and how does SARS-CoV-2 compare to influenza? Um, that's also a, a changing dynamic because of variants, right? So the, the, the strain that originally came out of China has a certain level of infectiousness associated with it. Well, the UK variant and the South African variant and the Brazilian variant and the Indian variant and the New York and California variants, it's different. So it's, it's uh, and, and, and a lot of those are all co-circulating within the United States now. So there's just so many moving parts and so many kind of uh, different factors that that play into it. A, a uh, to me, a simple math equation is not going to. It might be able to give you the snapshot in time of what things look like today, but I don't think they allow you to kind of prognosticate. Well, what's it going to look like in a month or two months or, you know, or three months? Um, so you know, for something like, uh, for something that's, uh, uh, you know, something like uh, polio or or uh, pertussis or measles and, uh, or influenza or SARS-CoV-2, it's the percentages could all be, could all be different. So immunity can be from the vaccination or from natural immunity if you had COVID-19, but do I hear you correctly? We don't know how long that immunity lasts for either of those situations? I think we have some preliminary information and we have some idea. Um, what I would say is that, uh, you know, not all immunity is created equal. So if you just take people who get naturally infected um, and uh, and they survive their infection, uh, you know they are going to have there's there's great variance in those people in terms of uh, what we measure, uh, like antibodies, for example. Um, it, it's it's going to be uh, you know a hundred people. Um, they're not going to all have the same antibody profile after they get infected. It depends upon, you know, what was their pre-existing immune status prior to being infected. Did they get a mild infection? Did they get a severe infection? Do they have underlying um, medical problems like diabetes or, or hypertension? And it's going to create variants within that group. And then over time, the immunity is going to wane. How quickly it wanes is also variable on, but, you know, based on the, uh, on the person. Now, if you take vaccination, um, it's much less variable. So, uh, the immune response that we measure within a vaccinated population, it's much tighter. You know, the data is much tighter. Um, and although we know that the immune responses decline over time, you know, we only have data out to a certain, uh, to a certain time point, right? You know, uh, protection data, you can look in the, uh, in, in the lay press and in the scientific literature, the, the, what the companies have kind of Moderna and Pfizer, BioNTech, et cetera, um, you know, it looks like we're good out to at least six months with vaccine-induced immunity and uh, protection. But this is why these studies are multiple years in duration. This is why we need real-world data uh, following people um, uh, remote, from, uh, remote from vaccination, you know, months and years after vaccination. So, so it's, it's an evolving story, but not all immunity is, um, is created equal and it's very difficult to, uh, predict what the, you know, what the bottom would be because everyone wants to know what that'll be because everyone wants to know, well, when am I at risk again? And do I need a booster? So those who are not immune include people who, for whatever reason, did not get vaccinated. Is there a significant number of people with health conditions that either prevent them from being vaccinated or maybe the vaccine is not working in them? Yeah, so, you know, the only, the only absolute contraindication to, for, being, for, you know, for being vaccinated, so the only reason why people should absolutely not be vaccinated is if they have a known allergy to a component of the vaccine. So that's, you know, so starting from that point, that, that those are really the only people that the FDA has said, you should not take these vaccines. Everybody else, it's on the table. And um, so, uh, you know, people that have had other 
life-threatening re uh, reactions to other vaccinations. That's something they, you know, they need to discuss with their, you know, with their medical provider and weigh the risk and benefit. Because, you know, the same people who have problems with their immune system, the same people who have, uh, you know, diabetes or cancer or who are actively receiving chemotherapy or they have other um, immunosuppressive conditions or they're, or they're taking immunosuppressive medications, um, those are the same people that we want to be protected and that we want to be vaccinated because they have a higher likelihood of a bad outcome if they do get infected. Um, and so, uh, you know, so I, I, it's tough for me to answer the question specifically like, oh, you know, 10% of the U.S. population has medical conditions that would prevent them from getting vaccinated. But you know, my 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 guess is that it's very low. It, it, the the people, by and large, who are not vaccinated right now in the United States, it's either because they're too young, or they don't have access for some reason, or they've elected to not be vaccinated. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air, and your host Amber Smith. I'm talking with Dr. Stephen Thomas, a physician scientist specializing in infectious disease, who was also involved in the trials for the Pfizer BioNTech COVID vaccine. So I want to ask about how we get to herd immunity and what's wrong with the suggestion of letting infection spread through children, for instance. Yeah, so that that was actually a proposal. There was a proposal that was, um, I think it was called the, the, the Barrington Accord or something like that, um, where a couple of scientists uh, had proposed that because this infection is mild in most people or most people who get infected don't have any symptoms at all. Because of that, what we should do is we should protect the most vulnerable uh, with public health interventions like, um, you know, wearing masks and physical distancing, et cetera. Uh, everybody else, we should have them live their life. And if they get infected, it's okay because it's going to be um, a low risk event for them. And then by doing that, we're going to speed up the process of generating herd immunity uh, you know, within, uh, within the United States and beyond. And, um, so that was the proposal. Um, and there are some places that actually sort of embraced variations on that theme. And so, uh, you know, Sweden is one of the places that, uh, you know, that did that. The, the problem is that, um, you know, I, I agree that the vast majority of people who get exposed to SARS-CoV-2, if they do get infected, there's going to be a significant percent that don't have any symptoms. There's going to be a significant percent that have symptoms, but they're, they're very mild. They don't even need to go to the doctor. Um, and the people that do develop symptoms, you know, of that group of people, the vast majority, 85%, um, are going to be completely fine and are going to do well, even if they need to go to the doctor and even if they need to come into the hospital. And then 15% of people are going to have severe or critical or critical disease and might die. And it's a, you know, overall it's, it would be a very low number, but the, the, the problem with COVID was not is not necessarily the number of people who are going to be hospitalized or the number of people who are going to die. It's the fact that the entire planet was non-immune <laughs> and the entire country was non-immune. So even if you have a very small percent of people who get infected, uh, who need to utilize healthcare resources, it still is going to overwhelm the healthcare system. It is still going to crush the hospitals and crush the emergency departments and, um, uh, you know, pediatricians' offices, et cetera. And that's exactly what happened in places that did not strictly implement or adopt uh, public health uh, interventions. And hospitals ran out of PPE, they ran out of ventilators, they ran out of hospital beds, they ran out of, uh, you know, all sorts of other resources that are required, not just to take care of people with COVID, but to take care of the person without COVID who needs to be in the hospital, the trauma patient, the, uh, uh, the person with heart failure, the person with diabetes, the person with a stroke. So um, it's kind of that, that secondary cost of COVID. That's why I think it was a bad idea to begin with. And, and I would say, you know, everyone applauded uh, uh, Sweden, but they ultimately, they stopped that, uh, they stopped that, um, approach and adopted, uh, what most other countries were doing in terms of lockdowns because their death rate was, um, beyond what other countries in the, in the EU, um, were, uh, were experiencing. And it just, it didn't, uh, 
it didn't it didn't work. Now we have herd immunity for polio and measles and other diseases. How were we able to achieve that? Vaccination. So vaccination for those other diseases is more widely accepted. Well, it's mandatory. You know, it's um, yeah. uh, it's mandatory for uh, in many in many locations and in many institutions. Uh, you know, for kids to go to school, for you to work in certain environments, for you know, it's it's just mandatory and it's accepted and uh, people people do it. It's like wearing seatbelts. It's like not smoking inside. It's uh, uh, like wearing helmets if you ride a motorcycle. It's just uh, it's it's like all of the security changes that were made after 9-11. It's just things that are designed to protect the greater good and people accept it and they incorporate it into their life and that's what they do. Upstate's HealthLink on Air will be back with more about herd immunity after this short break. Thanks for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. My guest is Dr. Stephen Thomas, the director of Upstate's Institute for Global Health and Translational Science. We've been talking about herd immunity. Well, so far, there's not a vaccine for kids, uh, although it's in development. Um, and I understand there are some people who are still on the fence about getting vaccinated, some who will only be vaccinated if they're required to, and some that are flat out refusing. Can we reach herd immunity without these people? Uh, my my personal opinion is that at a national level, I think it's going to be very very difficult to reach uh, herd immunity. And you know, I've written about this uh, in Forbes, and um, you know, because of the percent of people who remain on the fence and the people who said I'll only be vaccinated if I'm required to, or I'll never be vaccinated, uh, because of the large percentage of the population that is under 12 years of age, because now you can get at least the Pfizer vaccine down to 12 years of age. Sounds like Moderna is probably going to ask the FDA to expand the age range that people can get the Moderna vaccine. Um, uh, you know, so for all, you know, to have all these groups be unvaccinated um, at the same time that we are also rolling back a lot of these um, uh, um, uh, public health uh, requirements for masking and and uh, social and physical distancing, um, you know, because of all those because of all those reasons, I do not believe that at a national level we're going to be able to reach uh, uh, herd immunity at any at any point in time. However, I do believe that we can um, create uh, bubbles of immunity of varying sizes, uh, um, in, you know, throughout the country. So, for example. Uh, you know, you can go into a hospital where the vast majority, you know, 80 plus percent of the staff are vaccinated. So there's going to be an element of herd immunity within that hospital. You can go into, say, a high school or a middle school because um, they can now get the vaccine. And if the majority of those kids are vaccinated and the staff are vaccinated, there's going to be that bubble of immunity within that school um, and, and take places like, I mean, geez, Onondaga County. Uh, for example, so I think uh, in New York, you know, the every day, the number of people who have received a vaccination at the state level or the county level or the regional level, that number is ticking up every single day because people are rolling up their sleeves. So, so I think you can have these little bubbles of, of, uh, of immunity uh, throughout the country um, and they'll coalesce in some places, but, you know, are we going to get something like we have with polio or measles? Uh, yeah, no, I, I don't think. I don't think we're going to get there. Um, not not just because there are people who are not eligible, and not just because there are people who are on the fence, but because there are actually forces at work who are trying to prevent people from being immunized. Um, and I, I don't think all the forces fall into just anti-vaccine forces, but there are you know there are groups out there that don't want people to be immunized, and uh, um, you know that that's that's part of the equation as well. Would it ever be possible to eradicate this coronavirus the way smallpox has been eradicated? Uh, is it is it possible? I mean, theoretically, it is possible that if you have safe and uh, highly efficacious vaccines and you have um, 
the inventory of vaccines and people are provided the access uh, that they need uh, you know, to those vaccines, yes, it is possible, but that is gonna have to be a global solution because with our, with travel for business, travel for pleasure, with international commerce, with um, just people, you know, mobility in general, um, unless the whole planet is effectively immunized, there's always going to be the potential for uh, for reintroduction. And, I mean, you can just look at the United States and measles. I mean, when we've had certain uh, enclaves or certain communities within the United States decide that they don't want to vaccinate their kids against measles, we have measles outbreaks, right? And, um, you know, that's a very recent thing that happened not too, you know, not too long ago. And it was a uh, pales, you know, that that pales in comparison to what we're experiencing now, but it just shows you that it's a very fragile balance. And uh, if there's disruption um, for any reason, then uh, the balance can tip uh, in favor of the the virus or the bacteria or, um, you know, whatever other pathogen we're trying to uh, we're trying to prevent people from getting infected with and get sick from. So international travel, even just to if one country achieved herd immunity, international travel would sort of always be threatening that, right? If other countries are not as diligent in vaccinating people, won't those countries continue to put all of us at risk? Yes, I mean, you know, the um, you know, unless we are all protected, we all remain at risk. That kind of uh, you know, that kind of um, messaging is, you know, it's, it's true. Obviously there are nuances to that message, but um, it's true because there are always going to be people and there are always going to be populations who cannot be vaccinated and therefore remain at risk of infection and remain at risk of being able to pass that infection on to someone else. There is always going to be the concept of waning immunity. Um, and so I'm protected today and a year from now I am not protected and we need to see how that story um, plays out. Um, and, you know, there are always, uh, and viruses evolve as we know. And so there's always the potential that as this virus passes, um, you know, from one person to another and passes through a billion or more people, uh, it could evolve in two directions. It could evolve into something that's much more um, benign, like, a, you know, the common cold or, um, uh, something like that, uh, or it could evolve into something a little more sinister that evades the immunity that we have, uh, that we give to people through vaccination with the current vaccine constructs we have. Um, so for all, you know, so for all those reasons, unless there's really pretty good global coverage, uh, yeah, this thing's around for, this is going to be around for a really long time. So whether we reach herd immunity or not, this particular coronavirus is still going to be circulating so for people who are vaccinated, it, is it safe to get on with our lives or should we keep the hand sanitizer nearby? Well, it's always good to have hand sanitizer nearby, especially if you have kids, uh, because there's, you know, there's plenty of other things other than COVID that we want to prevent. And, you know, one of the things that you talk to people and the, the second uh, or follow-up comment to their COVID comment is, you know, I haven't had a cold in over a year or we didn't get the flu this year, or we haven't had any of those other diseases that kids bring home from school. Um, and it's because of these very simple public health interventions, right? It's the wearing of masks, not going to school if you're sick, washing your hands, uh, you know, staying home if you're ill, that kind of thing. Um, you know, so, so, you know, do I think that people who are vaccinated, you know, so today, you know, May 28th, uh, people who are vaccinated, do I feel, do I, believe that they are in a very safe space? I absolutely do. Um, do I believe that they can uh, shed their masks in uh, a number of uh, different scenarios that they previously could not? I absolutely do. I do it myself. If we were to have the uptake of COVID vaccines like we have for polio and measles um, and other vaccine preventable diseases where vaccination is required, uh, if we were to do that, do I think that the country could um, rapidly get back to a place that it hasn't been in, you know, 18 months? Uh, I do. I absolutely do. Um, and, you know, I, again, I was just talking about this with a colleague this morning. 
every single year in this country, influenza puts about a million people into the hospital and kills about 30 to 40,000 people, including around uh, uh, 200 children every year. And no one would really say that influenza impacts you know, their life that much on a year-to-year basis. And uh, you know, if, if we get to a moderate uh, level of vaccination within the country and persistence of COVID immunity at a moderate level in this country, that might be the kind of situation that we're, we're headed towards where you now just have to add COVID uh, to, you know, right next to flu as something that's going to sicken about a million people a year. Um, and, um, you maybe infect, uh, you know, tens of millions of people a year, and it's going to kill, you know, 30 to 50,000 people a year. And, uh, you know, that would be unfortunate if that was kind of the normal, but I think we could be headed. Um, we could be headed in that direction unless, you know, unless they start, unless they mandate. Uh, COVID vaccination, which is a totally different, uh, totally different discussion. Well, this has been very informative. Thank you to Dr. Stephen Thomas. He's director of Upstate's Institute for Global Health and Translational Science. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, why you might want to take a hike. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. We're talking today about hiking with Dr. Carol Sames. She's an associate professor of physical therapy education in Upstate's College of Health Professions. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Sames. Thanks so much, Amber. I'm glad to be here. How is hiking uh, different than walking? So there are some operational definitions that define what hiking and walking is. And traditionally, walking has been seen as a more casual activity, usually performed on what we would call groomed areas. So, you know, I might go up to Oneida Shores and walk along the beach. Okay, so sand. Or I might go along the Erie Canal. And for portions of the Erie Canal, it's um, you know, asphalt or um, crushed stone once you get past Manlius Center Road. But there's defined areas. If I go to a park or a playground, there's you know, defined areas that are usually well-groomed. Also, you generally don't have large changes in, in elevation. They tend to be on a flatter. And you know, if you're crossing any type of water, um, if you're on a walking trail, you'd usually have a footbridge or some type of bridge. And if you're hiking, generally speaking, um, you're going to either like um, boulder across um, or you're going to wade through the creek. You're going to get wet. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about the benefits of hiking um, compared with walking. Why would someone choose one over the other? So in terms of benefits, they're both wonderful in terms of their movement. You know, and movement is so key because we know that um, sedentary lifestyle is, is on the rise and we want to keep people active. So from just the standpoint that whether you are walking or hiking, um, you're out and you are moving. Um, when we look at those benefits and the just the multitude of benefits that occur from being active, you're going to get the same benefits in terms of reduction of risk factors for cardiovascular disease and reduction of risk factors for certain types of cancer. And then we get into the other things like increased quality of life and decreased risk of depression and anxiety. So those benefits are the same. What you get with hiking is that generally hiking um, is a more strenuous activity um, because the paths that you're on are not usually groomed. They're going to require a little bit more energy. There could be, you know, boulders, stones. There's going to be elevation changes. Um, so that just naturally requires more oxygen and more energy. So um, you're going to burn off more calories, so to speak per unit time. So there is a little bit of uh, a requirement to have some level of physical fitness really before embarking on hiking. 
Yes, especially certain hiking trails. <laughs> okay. Well, what is the learning curve like if someone's new to hiking? Say they've, you know, been a walker and um, they want to, you know, increase things a little bit and start hiking. What's the learning curve like? How how long does it take to feel confident in hiking? Great question, Amber. So if somebody is already, you know, fairly physically fit, they've been walking, you know, transferring over to hiking, especially starting out with hiking trails um, that are, you know, not in the expert or high moderate range would, would be fairly seamless. Um, the big thing is that depending on what you're going to hike, you want to really make sure that you have the appropriate footwear. So, you know, a lot of times you can go walking and I can go in my comfortable sneakers and, and life is good. Um, but when I change to something that's hiking, I want to make sure that if I do like that hiking, the uh, running shoe, walking shoe feel, you might want to get a trail shoe, something that has a more aggressive um, pattern on the bottom of the shoe, because once you start hiking, you're going to be running into uh, rocks and uh, trail shoes just, they grip a little bit better. They're, they're not like traditional sneakers, which tend to be a little bit flatter. And uh, especially if you're going to go and it's like mud season or it's rained, it's going to be slippery. And so you just have better footing on the trail. So trail shoes, would they be uh, water resistant? If if you're having to go through a creek, would you be less likely to, you know, soak your feet? So there's waterproof and water resistant. So, um, uh, and and you can get trail shoes. Uh, generally, they they tend to be water resistant. So, um, you know. Uh, and, and, and depending on how deep that creek is, you might want gaiters on because you might keep your feet okay, but then the bottom of your legs are going to get wet. Um, so, you know, it's really important when you, when, if you're going to make that transition to make sure that your footwear is appropriate. And that means um, kind of ditching like the cotton socks that you were probably using when you were walking. You really want to go with a wool sock. Um, uh, wool is just so much better in terms of reducing blister risk. And, you know, the last thing you want to do is be a couple miles out and you start developing blisters because that is going to be a painful hike back home. Aside from footwear, is there other gear that might be good to have for hiking? So, you know, what I'm going to start by saying is that, you know, when you kind of say, I want to go hike, the first thing you want to do is be an informed consumer. Like, where do I want to go? What kind of experience am I looking for? Am I looking for an experience that... Um, you know, is I want to just kind of put my big toe into the hiking world. I want to choose a, a trail that would be the appropriate length that would have the appropriate elevation rise to, you know, some hiking trails are can be fairly flat. So I want to really do my research first. Um, I want to make sure that I, I uh, either have printed out a map or I have downloaded the map onto my phone or if you're going to be hiking in higher elevations where cell phone um, use is problematic, you want to have something, you want to go old school map and compass, or you want to have a watch that's like GPS, because the worst thing you want to do is be out there and then find out that you don't know where you're at. Um, most trails are well marked. However, I can tell you I've been out before and the trail marker was down and you know, next thing you know, you're lost. And uh, depending on where you're at, there might not be a lot of people out there. So, you know, really kind of do your homework. Um, after you've kind of done your homework, check the weather. I know that sounds silly, um, but let's face it, we live in central New York and we know how quickly the weather can change. So I happened to notice this afternoon, there's like a chance of thunderstorms. Well, you wanna know that because again, depending on how far you're going, um, should I pack the the rain coat? Um, and generally, you know, if there's even a threat, I always just have my raincoat available. If you're going to hike, you know, for more than, say, two hours, you probably want to have a, a pack with you that has fluids, um, that has some kind of snack, um, that has that raincoat just in case. You know, the little first aid kit, um, just in case you take a little tumble and you need a little neosporin and you you know, need a Band-Aid to clean something up. Um, if it's going to be sunny, let's face it, sunscreen. Um, a hat, I might even want to have hat and glasses if it's really bright. Uh, if you are going to go on trails, we're in tick season now. 
and you know ticks are on the rise and um, so I want to make sure that I have appropriate bug spray um, you know we also we're we don't experience the black flies like they do in the Adirondacks but you know this is almost black fly season and so again you, you want to make sure you have that insect repellent um, so that's really important to be prepared because you want the experience to be enjoyable um, you know the last thing you want to do is go oh man i'm out of water and i still have two miles to go because once you're thirsty you're already dehydrated um, and that's just not a, a you know nobody wants to sabotage their hike that way you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Carol Sames, who's an associate professor of physical therapy education in Upstate's College of Health Professions. And we're talking about hiking. Let me ask you, uh, one of the most common injuries um, hiking is blisters, right? Is there a way to prevent that or, or treat them if you're on the trail still? So the best way to prevent them is make sure you try your shoes on. You know, I, I don't buy my hiking boots online i try them on because you know i want to try them on with the appropriate wool socks that i have to make sure they fit and to know that you know possibly when it's warm my foot is going to get a little bit bigger as the hike goes on um, especially when it's warm my foot's going to get a little bit bigger and i need to make sure that my toes are not jammed up against the ends because that's asking for blisters to walk around with them before you hike um, you know, just the typical, I don't want to put brand new shoes on and go, here I am, I'm ready to go hike because that's a recipe for disaster. Uh, I have gotten a blister before, so that's why I have the first aid kit, um, you know, with uh, kind of depending on where the blister is and uh, how bad it's gotten. Um, you know, I have some Neosporin because I don't want it to get infected. I got some Band-Aids, I got some thicker um, gauze pads that are in there. Um, but you really want to try to prevent blisters because that just makes the hike miserable. Um, you know, cuts, you can easily get cut if you slip. Again, always good to have the first aid kit. Um, depending on when you're hiking, the hypo or hyperthermia, that's why it's really important. Um, generally, most people underestimate how much fluid they need. Um, so, you know, anytime you're carrying fluid, it's more weight that you're carrying, but you don't want to be coming back and be out of fluid, especially on a hot, humid day. Um, sunburn, that's why we have sunscreen, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, I, I just won't hike in the woods without uh, you know, bug repellent because I don't want to, I don't want to get a tick and then not notice it and it develop into something. But, um, you know, they're kind of the big potential injuries um, and then coming downhill when you're descending it's much more a force on your joints so um, you want to be careful that's why a lot of people will bring trekking poles so that when they go down you can use those poles just it, it really can guide you and it can take some of the force off and off your knees because that's an eccentric contraction and if you're going to wake up sore you're sore because you've been coming downhill not, not uphill so um, uphills more cardiovascular downhill is you just don't want to slip you want to make sure you have good firm footing because you never want to fall on rocks so uh, how do you feel about the use of uh, poles for hiking is that a necessity i don't hike without them because i need them on the downhills um you know ascending is one thing but descending i need the poles um, because what they do is they just help me with placement um, especially uh, if maybe it's a little muddy or the rocks are wet, um, I just feel more comfortable. Uh, um, you know, I'm not leaping from rock to rock as I'm coming down. Those days have passed. And so the trekking poles just give me confidence. Uh, when you use trekking poles, though, they, they take a little bit more energy because now you're using your arms, you're placing the poles and then moving. So it does take a little bit more energy, but I feel that the trade-off for me is safety because I don't want to fall. You know, every year, if you read the, you know, every week the Adirondacks come out with how many people they've had to rescue, you know, and, and a lot of times it's you know, people fell. And um, so I don't wanna be that person that gets carted off um, because I fell. So I really enjoy those trekking poles. They are very helpful on the downhill for me. So in central New York, are there some spots where you would recommend people could get started um, 
trying out an easy hike for beginners or maybe families with younger kids? Where are some of your favorite spots to start? So I want to tell the audience that I am not going to talk about every amazing spot in central New York because this program would go on for hours. Um, however, you know, a, a place that I think that's really nice to start out with is like Green Lakes. Green Lakes, you can both walk. So technically, if you're walking around Green Lake or Round Lake, that's technically a walk. But then there are so many trails that you can take. Um, and what's nice about that is, you know, if you have the kids, you can easily go around the two lakes. There's not really an elevation change. Around the back lake, Round Lake, they actually have it mulched. Um, and then you could also then, uh, when you come back to the beach, you could, uh, if the weather's appropriate, you go for a swim. Um, so you have a lot of options. The Vista Trail on the top uh, gives you some amazing views on a, on a nice day. Um, Deer Run is nice. Uh, the Old Growth Trail that, that takes you through some really old growth uh, trees, that's really nice. Um, that trail's actually 2.9 miles. Um, but it's going to have more elevation changes and kind of depending on how old your children are and what kind of shape they're in, you know, if you stay lower, you know, you're going to be good. So that's fantastic. Um, there's also some easier trails down at uh, Labrador Hollow. There's a Tinker Falls Trail, which is nice. And you get to see the falls when there's a decent amount of water. Um, uh, there's Labrador Pond, which has a boardwalk, which is great if you're pushing strollers. Um, it makes it a little bit easier. Um, to find. You also have um, the Camillus uh, Forest Unique that has some really fabulous shorter trails. Um, you could also go to Baltimore um, Woods in Marcellus, which has really nice trails, not too long. Um, again, with children, it's I always feel like when I would take my kids, it was better for me to do multiple loops than to attack a longer trail just in case something happens. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of places that are just perfect for that kind of starting out hiking. Well, here in Syracuse, the Adirondacks are sort of in our backyard. Um, you know, a few hour drive, and there you are. But how challenging are those peaks? Is that something people from here could tackle? You know, I would say if somebody hasn't done one of the high peaks and. You know, uh, the definition of a high peak is basically 4,000 feet or higher. And um, the, the, the two that usually people attack first are Cascade and Porter. They're right next to each other. You can do them together. I think technically Cascade is not 4,000 feet. It's a little bit below that, but they are super busy. And um, the Adirondacks have made some changes to parking. And so they've eliminated some parking on 73. Um, just because during COVID, people uh, found hiking and um, basically they were in droves, people were going to the Adirondacks. So, um, I mean, the Adirondacks are fantastic, um, but they, Cascade and Porter are really quite crowded. Even if you get there early and you, um, you know, headlamp uh, in the dark in the beginning just to try to beat the crowd, um, there are fabulous places even around central New York, like, Morgan Hill State Park, um, which is kind of like Fabius Truxton area. There's elevation up to 2000 feet. It's actually um, Morgan Hills, the highest peak in um, central New York. Um, you could get on the North Country um, National Scenic Trail, which is also known as the Onondaga Trail. Now, you could hike for 15 miles. Um, you could also get down to Ithaca, go to uh, Robert Tremon State Park, and you could get some nice hiking in there. Highland Forest is fantastic. Um, uh, Highland Forest, you know, is gonna cost you $3 um, to, uh, per day to hike. Um, but the main trail is um, about 8.8 .8 miles and it's a fantastic trail. So like you could do some things closer and then um, say, now I'm gonna go up to the Adirondacks. There's also many peaks in the Adirondacks that are not high peaks. Um, you know, 2,000, 3,000 feet, uh, not necessarily as popular, so you can get on them a little bit easier. So you're right. We just have so many opportunities all around us. Thank you to Dr. Carol Sames from Upstate's College of Health Professions Physical Therapy Education Program. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now for some expert advice from the experts at Upstate. 
Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy is Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate University Hospital in Syracuse. What happens when someone learns they're positive for HIV, the virus that causes AIDS? So one of the first things that I like to do is talk to patients about um, whether or not this was a total surprise or whether they suspected that they might have HIV. And that can really make a big difference in how people handle the diagnosis. Um, so for some, it's, it's really quite a shock and quite overwhelming. Um, and they feel that there's a lot of pieces that they're going to have to address and they don't know even where to begin. And for other people, they thought this might be coming and they've sort of mentally prepared themselves. Perhaps they have friends living with HIV. So there's really a huge spectrum um, on which to find people in this situation in terms of um, their knowledge level and how they handle the diagnosis. Um, and one of the first things we talk about is really to reassure patients that um, as scary as this is for many, uh, this has become much more of a treatable disease than it was in the past. So that for the vast majority of people, the outlook is quite good. And the earlier you are diagnosed in terms of your immune status, so in terms of how healthy your immune system still is, um, the better you'll do. So we have tried to promote um, uptake of testing earlier on, and we are finding that in general we have patients coming in um, with a better immune status than what they did before. Um, so we review what, what that immune status means, um, how we check the patient's immune system and find out how healthy their immune system is. Um, and then we discuss whether or not they have any other kinds of illnesses that might be associated with HIV or not. Um, and then we, we start to go over or introduce the idea of taking medications for HIV. Um, so we do do that very early on in the diagnosis, and that's because at this point um, medication is recommended as soon as possible after testing positive um, because mounting evidence um, has shown that there are major benefits to the immune system in starting earlier. Um, and another piece of, of good news is that the medications that are available now are much better tolerated than they were in the past. So we have um, four different regimens that are one pill once a day. And so most patients, I would say the vast majority of patients who are starting out now will start on a one pill once a day regimen um, and sometimes two pills once a day. But it's really um, much, much easier to, to deal with than uh, what was the case in the past. And the side effects of those medications have also become much more tolerable. So um, most of my patients actually don't experience side effects, or if they do experience effects, it's that they actually feel that their health is improved. Um, so I really try to encourage people that um, if you're able to get on medicine and stay on medicine um, and think about ways to just incorporate that into your life, that ultimately HIV can become a very small, small problem in your overall, the, the overall picture of your health. Thank you, Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy from Upstate Medical University. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Eric Mahan Howd teaches professional and technical writing at Ithaca College. His new collection of poetry, Universal Monsters, has just come out from the Orchard Street Press. He sent us a beautiful celebration of a man's life told through a series of nautical images. Here is The Sailor's Hitch. The first time he came home from surgery, he found it difficult to rise out of the waterbed. His stomach muscles, though tightly woven, were severed to get at what darkness was swimming inside of him. So he brought some old rope out of the cellar looped one end around the post at the foot of the bed and formed the other into a handle. Each morning he'd pull himself up out of the mattress, far enough to swing his feet over the edge and push off toward the window, the fresh air of springtime, the distant smell of salt water. He grew up with sand between his toes, his soles hard calloused from pounding beach and boardwalk. He tied himself to the tides and shore, to the silent father who returned home from war, to the tired mother who punished with her glance, 
to the beached whale of his youth that appeared above the fold of the Sunday issue of the Asbury Park Press, to anything that was anchored. He knew the best knot for every situation, the binding half-hitch, the fishing line's blood knot, the secure icicle hitch, the strong water bowline. He knew how the barrel hitch was best for suspending objects, how the slip knot was not a noose, and how the monkey's fist needs to be stuffed into crevice to root the climber's line. He knew of pull and slack and broke his back on roof's edge, hauling bundles of shingles from ground to pitch with towline. He fished for the end of the rope with boat hook to pull his family to dock mooring after a day swimming in steel-gray Atlantic waters and hitched the salty ends to the slip's corroded horn cleats. He eventually let his boat go and dug an in-ground pool, bought a waterbed, and moved closer to Shark River Inlet, the place where grown-ups warned their children not to swim with tales of teeth, the whites of rolled-back eyes, and breeding. He always wanted to see the darkness inside of the whale and regretted not using his pocket knife to open the one he found on Bradley Beach as a child to discover what was beneath skin and fat and muscle. By the time hospice came, he had tied his rope to the living room recliner, and as he died, he reached up as if to pull another rope we could not see, to pull himself up to the ceiling as he cried, Mommy, Daddy, and struggled to get closer, to pull himself toward the knot, hand over hand, toward his darkness, his light. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.